One of the most sobering experiences I think you can have in life or an experience that oftentimes invites deep reflective questions is when you attend or are part of a funeral. Uh, maybe I can invite you right now to consider the last funeral that you attended. Uh, oftentimes, as a pastor, I have the opportunity uh, to step into a family's life when they are in the earliest stages of their grief and ask questions about how do we want to remember, how do we want to celebrate the life of this person that you deeply loved? When you're then at that funeral, you're then considering and reflecting upon the life of the person that is being celebrated. But then at the same time, I don't know if you have found it, but I have certainly found it to be the case that I begin asking questions about my own life. I think ahead to my own funeral and I ask questions of what will be said of me? How will people reflect on the life that I have lived? You begin to ask questions about your life as now you are living it, of what do I want from my life? What are the goals and dreams that I have for myself and for the other people that are around me? What would it mean for me in the time that I believe I have left to live well? And what is the good life at all? On the flip side, you maybe are forced to then begin to do some reflection on the life that you've lived up to that point. And ask questions about your life. Have I been disappointed with the life that I have lived thus far? Maybe you had goals and dreams that you have not accomplished. Or maybe even you have things that you have accomplished. But then you ask yourself the question, was it all worth it? Was the cost worth the benefit? You set out and said, I want to do this. And you've done it. But was it all worth it? Is there any meaning, maybe you said, to anything that I have done? A few years ago, I was uh, in a season of of working out at a gym and uh, had been going pretty regularly every morning and was looking around one morning and I got very philosophical and very reflective and said, if there were aliens that would suddenly appear and come and appear in this gym, would they think we were all insane? All of us, like little hamsters in a cage, running on the treadmill and going, where does this all lead? What happens when you break your ankle and suddenly all of the work and all of the mornings that you got up early, all of the work has now been, has it been ultimately for naught? And you're back to the beginning. We'll enter Ecclesiastes a book that, as was already said, we find in the wisdom literature of the scriptures. In the wisdom literature, there is Proverbs, there's Ecclesiastes, and there is Job. And what each of these books invite us to consider is what does it actually mean to live well in the world? Now, in Proverbs, we learn that wisdom and the fear of the Lord is the answer to that question of how to live well. But then we have Ecclesiastes, where the preacher, the critic, actually says, "Ah, there's actually some shortcomings to wisdom. He's reminding us that even in wisdom and the fear of the Lord, life might not be what you hoped that it would be. An example, a very common example, Proverbs 22, verse 6. You may have heard this one before. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. 
Last week in our Hot Seat Sunday, this was a big question around uh, our kids and discipling them and wanting to raise them to love Jesus and recognizing the powerlessness at the end of the day that you have over that. And Ecclesiastes is not contradicting what Proverbs has said, but Ecclesiastes and the cynic preacher will say that you can raise your children with all the best teaching and training, and they may actually depart from it. In this sense, what we're invited to consider about Proverbs is how we're to best then understand Proverbs, which is principles for life rather than promises that equal 100% that it will happen. And for this reason, Herman Melville, who you may be familiar with, author of Moby Dick, called Ecclesiastes the truest of all books. And in medieval thought, they actually thought of Ecclesiastes as the most dangerous of books. Now, the author of Ecclesiastes is distinct and different from someone else that we're introduced to, which is the preacher, teacher, or as I've already said, a bit of the cynic. And we see this in, right at the very beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. And preacher is the Hebrew word kohelet. Turn to your neighbor and say kohelet. And kohelet means one who gathers people together. And so in the case of Ecclesiastes, the intent is to listen and learn. And so most translations translate kohelet to teacher and preacher as we are gathering to listen and to learn. Now here in verse 1, the person is said to be the son of David, but there's actually differing opinions on who this figure really is. Most common historical one would be that of King Solomon. Others have suggested, however, it could be a later king in David's line. And others have even suggested it's a later Israelite teacher who's adopted something of a Solomon-like persona as some form of a teaching age aid. Now, regardless of who this preacher is, it's important to note that the teacher is a character in the book that is distinct from the author of the book, who still, to you and to me, remains anonymous. While it's the teacher we hear the most, it's the author who introduces us to the teacher. And he does that here in chapter 1, verse 1, but he also concludes the book by summarizing and evaluating all that the teacher has said. And so if you have your Bible, you can go with me to the very end, chapter 12, 9 to 14. It will be on the screen, and this is where you get the example of the author being distinct from the preacher or teacher. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd." My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil." What we can understand then, as this author is distinct from this preacher or teacher, is that the author is clearly a person who wants us to hear, therefore, everything that the preacher has to say, but also at the same time wants to help us form conclusions as we take in the preacher and teacher's teachings. 
Now, the preacher adopts a bit of the perspective of a secularist, not ultimately denying God's existence, but trying to live life as though his existence were optional. The preacher, therefore, in Ecclesiastes, exposes the script to us before we live it, encouraging us to ask hard questions, and along the way, what he does is he pops, as I put it, our good news bubbles. Every single one of us has this good news bubble that we believe, if this thing happens to me, this will be the best thing ever. And what the preacher wants to do is go, boop, and deflate it. Now, at times, as you maybe already heard in what we've already read and listened to, the preacher feels like a bit of a metaphysical buzzkill. And it's only because he has no time at all for half-baked hopes or contradictory viewpoints shared in tandem. And what he's encouraging us to do towards is that you should not want these things either. He has lived life and taken all of the popular roots to find meaning and purpose, but in the process has discovered the fact that when God is removed from the equation, we're simply left with everything that's under the sun, a phrase used 29 times, which also means just as it is. And so enter the invitation to be a skeptic and to doubt, something the preacher seems to actually encourage for you and for me. As one author I read this week put it, if we don't doubt the perspective of life without God, then we won't appreciate the truth of life with God. Let me say that again. If we don't doubt the perspective of life without God, then we won't appreciate the truth of life with God. I remember hearing stories of students, first-year university students, being in intro to philosophy classes in their first year of their bachelor, and philosophy professors asking people who believed in God to raise their hand, and in response saying something along the lines of, I will take that belief away from you the way an adult could take a bottle from a baby. And as you've maybe read the stats or heard stories, certainly there are young people abandoning faith and in a sense, we have to ask the question, did they ever consider a life without God or without some teaching when they were younger as they were growing up around what is the view of life without God? And here is Ecclesiastes, which again wants to pop our good news bubbles. So what does the preacher have to say? Where does the preacher begin? Once again, words that were already introduced for us, but I'll describe them a bit in more detail. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, vanity or vanities is the Hebrew word havel. And so once again, turn to your neighbor and say havel. Now, some translate this as vanity or meaningless. Maybe you're in your translation, it says, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. But a true capturing of the word is either vapor or smoke. And this word is used 38 times throughout the book as a metaphor to describe how life itself is temporary and fleeting, like a wisp of smoke, but also how life is an enigma or paradox. Tim Mackey, in his The Bible Project on the book of Ecclesiastes, says this, Smoke appears solid, but when you try to grab it, it's like nothing is there. And here is what the teacher is getting at. 
There's so much goodness and beauty in the world, but just when you're enjoying it, tragedy strikes and it all seems to blow away. Most people believe in right and wrong and have a sense of justice, so why do bad things happen to good people all the time despite our best intentions? Life is constantly unpredictable and unstable, or in the teacher's description, like chasing a wind. All is hevel. This is the teacher's basic motto, and it's a total downer. Why is he saying all of this? The author's basic goal is to target all the ways that we try to build meaning and purpose in our life apart from God and then let the teacher deconstruct them. The author thinks that people spend most of their time investing energy and emotion in things that ultimately have no lasting meaning or significance, and he allows the teacher to give us a reality check. In this sense, the word vanity is less about mirrors and makeup and more to do with the meaning of your life. The preacher is saying, in essence, if this is all there is, if you're only living for the temporary or the transient, then it's all vanity and it's all pointless. (laughs) Now, the opening poem which Sonia read for us earlier, is an incredible example of what this preacher is going to get into more as the book progresses. And what I want to do now is, you've already heard it in the English Standard Version, but what I want to do is read it for you. And many of you will know I don't do this often, but I think that Eugene Peterson's paraphrase in the message, just you'll get why I want to read it here in a moment and how he paraphrases these, this, this part of chapter 1. So hear these words, the passage again. What's there to show for a lifetime of work? A lifetime of working your fingers to the bone. One generation goes its way, the next one arrives, but nothing changes. It's business as usual for old planet Earth. The sun comes up. And the sun goes down, then does it again and again, the same old round. The wind blows south, the wind blows north. Around and around and around it blows, blowing this way, then that, the whirling erratic wind. All the rivers flow into the sea, but the sea never fills up. The rivers keep flowing to the same old place and then start all over and do it again. Everything's boring, utterly boring. No one can find any meaning in it. Boring to the eye, boring to the ear. What was will be again. What happened will happen again. There's nothing new on this earth. Year after year, it's the same old thing. Does someone call out, hey, this is new? Don't get excited. It's the same old story. Nobody remembers what happened yesterday and the things that will happen tomorrow, nobody will remember them either. Don't count on being remembered. Call me the quester. I've been king over Israel in Jerusalem. I looked most carefully into everything, searching out all that is done on this earth. And let me tell you, there's not much to write home about. God hasn't made it easy for us. A few themes to note from the preacher already here in this first poem in Ecclesiastes. One, the frustration and the futility of work. 
in the ESV, verse 3, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now, this is a theme throughout Ecclesiastes as the preacher challenges us by saying, if our whole focus is about working and achieving in order to bring meaning in your life, you need to stop and consider the march of time because for all human effort that takes place in the world, nothing really changes. Now, you might find it interesting the things that I'm going to point out here are also things that are direct impact of the fall. Humanity's rebellion against God. In Genesis 3, 17 to 19, we read this. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all of the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread." The difficulty, the pain, the toil of work. You know, I don't think anyone gets to the end of their life and says, Oh my goodness, I wished I'd spent more time working. Don't most people get to the end of their life and say, I wish I'd spent more time with the people that I love the most. I wish I'd worked more overtime. I wish I'd spent more time away from the people that I love. The futility of work and frustration of work. Secondly, our limited time and our certain death. Verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes. Brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, we will all die. And the poem at the end of the book emphasizes death as being the great equalizer. Time will eventually erase you, me, and everything that we care about. Death is also a result of the fall. Genesis 2 verse 15 to 17, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then Genesis 3 verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Consider this, a hundred years from now, no one will likely remember you and the things that you have done. Realistically, as generations come and as generations go, there are only a few people in the points of history that really, we would say, made enormous difference in the grand scheme of world history, meaning that the majority of us will actually live lives of obscurity. As a way to illustrate this, do any of you know the names of your great-great-grandparents? How about what they did for a living or what mattered to them? And what does Ecclesiastes, the preacher, say? Don't count on being remembered. Death, brothers and sisters, is the enemy, and it certainly is visceral. 
So our limited time and certain death. Thirdly, the limitations even of the natural world. Verses 5 to 7. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they will flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Now, while the teacher contrasts the nature, the natural world, to our experience, and that a mountain will be present when we are gone, and the ocean tide will still come in and go out, and the sun will still rise and set, there's also a decay in the natural world. There is a time in the New Testament where this word vanity is applied, and it's applied in this way, which is also a result of the fall on the natural world. Romans 8, verse 20 to 22. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Here, Paul is painting a picture of the, everything deteriorating. Paul knows it has been diagnosed as futile, as heading for a crash. But then the preacher points out that not only is creation groaning, there's also reality that the natural world alone cannot give us our meaning. We can study through a microscope, but we will not find the chief end of man by simply looking at the natural world. It has to point to something else if it has the capacity to point to something else at all. And then fourthly, another theme that stands out there's nothing truly new. Verses 9 and 10. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is says, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. Now, while technology has certainly advanced over time. Every bit is a building block and what has come in the past. You think of the smartphone an example and the advances of the iPhone from one stage to the iPhones that we have now. But even in the introducing of all of these new technologies, the technologies introduce for us new problems. And ultimately then, nothing that has been created or invented can truly answer the question of our ultimate search for meaning. Now, why would the author do this to us in bringing this, this teaching of the preacher to us? What's, what's the author's intent, but also what is the author's invitation? One, to ask hard questions about our lives. I want to suggest that we can't continue being entertained out of our minds, avoiding the nature of reality. I think all of us are intended to shudder with cosmic anxiety from time to time, and we're meant to wonder about forever when we attend our funeral or even drive by a cemetery. As scary and as sobering as these experiences can be, they're also deeply meaningful to us to consider 
our lives and ask hard questions. Secondly, why would the author do this? What's the intent? Secondly, to explore our aspirations, our career or otherwise, our assets, our wealth, and our attitudes, our social status and pleasure, in order to show that all is a vapor, a chasing after the wind. As I said, we all have these, these good news bubbles made up in our mind. If, if, I, if I only accomplish this, if I only got to this place in my career, then everything would be perfect. But as we'll see next week in particular, even the things that we aspire towards, while they can be good, they're not the places that we can ultimately find meaning and satisfaction. Thirdly, by examining the apparent meaningless of our life as the first step, it helps us to see our need for someone to step into the darkness and then put our fears to rest. You know, you may notice that as I raise the themes from this first poem, that the themes that I pointed out may be some of your greatest fears in life around your work, is what I do, will I, will I merely make a difference in all the work that I do? Maybe you're terrified of death. I believe we live in a culture terrified of death. Or how about the decaying natural world? Maybe that's a great fear for you. Or maybe the fear of just being forgotten altogether. Which then leads us to the fourth place, which is where I believe Ecclesiastes is ultimately inviting each and every single one of us, which is trust and surrender to God and his love through Christ. Because you and I cannot control the most important things in our lives, absolutely nothing is guaranteed. Therefore, what the invitation is of Ecclesiastes, of this preacher, is to adopt a posture of trusting God and therefore living free to enjoy life as we experience it. Peter Kreef said this of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is the question to which Christ is the answer. Enter who is the ultimate preacher and the ultimate teacher. What the preacher of Ecclesiastes wants to do is for us to look beyond life under the sun as he paves a way for a preacher king who comes centuries later, a man who not only asks hard questions, but also gives the greatest answers. Tim Chaddock in his book Better says this, By coming to earth as a human, God broke the cycle. He did something utterly new and unique, something that will last forever. By subjecting himself to the vanity that is mortality, he evaporated the status quo. By rising back to life and breathing death, he broke vanity's curse and made a path through the void. That's why Jesus is known as the hope of the world. He is the greatest hero. Though the world was subjected to judgment of futility in order to wake us up, God subjected himself to this world of futility as our Savior to what raise us up. There is no better hope. Through Christ, we come to see that it's possible to live life with realism and hopefulness and not to become completely naive and absolutely cynical. 
we come to see that living well is a life of gratitude and joy in the simple pleasures of life, surrendering ourselves completely to God with open hands, trusting him for what tomorrow will ultimately bring. I also want to once again invite you to consider the realities of the fall and how Christ changes things. Christ gives us meaning in our work as what we can do is ultimately trust him for the results of what we do. That when we retire or when we die or when we step away from our work, that Christ is king and he can continue that process. This is why Sabbath is such an in-your-face practice to say, step away from your work. Trust that God is continuing to do things when you are invited to rest. Or how about Christ's promise uh, for us of life after death through his resurrection? Christians do not need to fear death because we live eternally with Christ because of his death and resurrection. Christ also promises that the natural world will be restored. And also Christ takes our effort and multiplies them in ways that you and I could never imagine. And so here's the invitation of Ecclesiastes. Will you come along for the journey? As the preacher says, you and I will never have the resources or time to walk in the preacher's footsteps. But the invitation is that every single one of us throughout this book can learn from his discoveries. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that we would take seriously this invitation. I pray that we would begin asking these hard questions, that we would recognize that the places where we place our hope and trust are little g-gods in our lives, our idols, the place that takes all of our affections, that they're not worth it. And what they promise, they cannot promise because they are temporary. And so would you lead us, Lord Jesus, to yourself. We thank you that we have hope. And I pray that you'd also remind us that we can be grateful for each simple pleasure every day and see it ultimately as a gift from you. We want to trust you. In your name, amen.